Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, and Philippians 1, 6. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, and Philippians 1, 6. We are continuing in our sermon series called The Unbreakable Chain of Salvation, where we're looking at the, the links that make up this unbreakable chain, uh, the, the various um, gifts uh, and ways in which God applies the salvation that Christ won for us 2,000 years ago. And uh, we're, we've looked at uh, a, a number of these links. We've looked at, uh, if you want to go to the next slide, we've looked at the electing work of God, how God elects us. We've looked at uh, how God has called and regenerated His people. We've looked at how God has converted His people, how He justifies His people, adopts His people. Last week, we looked at how God sanctifies His people. And this brings us to the seventh link, which is that God preserves His people. And we'll look at that in Romans 8, 29 and 30, and Philippians 1, 6. Before we jump in, let's uh, take a moment to pray together. Father, we ask that you would bless and anoint the reading and preaching of your word by the presence and power of your spirit so that we would be convicted and comforted, broken down where we need to be broken down, built up where we need to be built up, killed and made alive by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Help us now, open our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts to receive your word with faith and trust and obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John Newton was a depraved and deplorable man. Uh, throughout his life, his vileness was evident wherever, wherever he went. Uh, his mother, uh, she was a godly woman. She longed for him to be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, but she died when Newton was only seven years old. And then just a few years later, at 11, he was sent to work on a ship under the Merchant Navy captain. But then due to his, his misbehavior and vile attitude, just a few years later, he was fired. He then joined the Royal Navy, shortly after deserted. Then he was caught for deserting and put in irons and flogged. From there, he went to work on a slave ship. After that, he worked under a slave trader on a plantation of lemon trees in West Africa. And then, eventually, due to his experience on the sea, Newton became the captain of a slave ship himself, which transported, kidnapped, and enslaved Africans to be sold in Britain. On one day, the, the, the ship that Newton was captain of met with a storm which caused Newton to fear for his life. And this drove him to cry out to God for salvation because he knew that if he died, hell would be his deserved destination. And now he, he later recounted that he, didn't, he doesn't think that he was actually truly converted there on that ship at that time. He did continue to participate in the slave trade for a time, but slowly and surely, he became increasingly disgusted with the practice and with his own participation in it, and he increasingly desired godliness and desired Christ. And eventually, he left all of it altogether. He sensed a call to the ministry, and he gave the rest of his life to preaching the gospel and working to put an end to the slave trade in Britain. Now, what causes, what causes a transformation such as this? 
I mean, in a man so vile, so crude, so sinful, to be transformed, to make a 180, to repent and to preach the gospel and to work to end the evil thing of which he once participated in, it can only be due to the reality of which he wrote in his most famous hymn, the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. He said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. It was this amazing grace, the grace of God that transformed Newton. And it's that amazing grace that we've been exploring in this series, the unbreakable chain of salvation. We've been exploring the grace of God which saves and transforms and regenerates and justifies and adopts and changes wretched, vile sinners like us into sons and daughters who bear the resemblance of their Father in heaven. But now as we move on to the seventh link of this unbreakable chain, we want to explore what it is that makes this chain unbreakable in the Christian life. We want to explore the reality of which Newton goes on to write about in his hymn, Amazing Grace, when he says, "'Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." In other words, we want to explore the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. The preservation of the saints. And, and you might have heard this before, talked about as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's the same thing, speaking to the same reality, just from different perspectives, different emphases. When we talk about the preservation of the saints, we, we might be looking at it from the sort of heavenly perspective, that this is God's work in His people. When we talk about the perseverance of the saints, we might be looking at it more from, a, from an earthly perspective, as, as the uh, endurance of the people of God based on the preserving work of God. But in the end, we, we mean the same thing by these two phrases, the preservation, the perseverance of the saints, and that is that those who are genuinely God's people will never finally fall away from his saving grace. God's beloved children will make it home by his grace. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. If you want to stand for the reading of God's holy word, first in Romans 8, 29 and 30, and then we'll look at Philippians 1, 6. So listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, the big idea that we want to explore this morning is that God preserves his people so that they persevere to the end. God preserves his people so that they persevere to the end. And we'll unpack that by looking at the principle of the preservation of the saints the problems with the preservation of the saints and the practicality from the preservation of the saints. The principle, the problems, the practicality. You might recognize that outline from the first one in our series where we looked at predestination. We want to do the same thing this morning. We want to explain what this doctrine is. We want to defend it based on Scripture, and we want to apply it so we know how this applies to our lives today. So first, the, the principle, as we've mentioned before, Romans 8, 29, and 30 is our sort of home-based text in this series, even if we're taking trips out to other texts. 
uh, throughout the series. And, and while this particular text doesn't explicitly mention preservation as a link that makes up this unbreakable chain, the idea is written all over the passage. So look at Paul's logic in the passage. He says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So notice how each link here, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, each link is most certainly and absolutely followed by the following link, by the next link. So there's a group of people that God foreknew, and this very same group of people, indicated by the word also, are also those that he predestined. And then this very group of people whom God predestined, he also called and justified and will one day glorify, so that the very same group of people that God foreknew and predestined for salvation in eternity past are the exact same group of people who will be glorified in eternity future. So if if we're going to think of this as an equation, and I'm really bad at math, but this is simple enough that even I can figure it out. If we think of this as an equation, group A are those whom God foreknew. Group B are those whom he predestined. Group C are those whom he called. Group D are those whom he justified. And group E are those whom he will one day glorify. And Paul's math here, his logic, is that group A equals group B equals group C equals group D equals group E. It's the same group. It's the same group. No one whom God foreknew and predestined in eternity past will fail to receive God's gift of glorification in eternity future. Just as Jesus said in John 6, 39, he said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of that which he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. God will preserve his people. His saving work is indestructible, and therefore our salvation is indestructible. And so it's for good reason then that Paul then writes another, to another local church in Philippi, And he says to them, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This good work that Paul is referring to, here's the same good work that he's talking about in Romans 8, the good work of salvation. And notice whose work it is, just as he's the object of the verb predestined, called, justified, glorified, just as he's the object of that verb, just as he's the one whose work it is. So in Philippians 1, 6, Paul says this salvation, this good work is God's work. Therefore, Paul reasons that this good work is not ultimately dependent on the strength or the virtue or resolve or power of human beings. It's ultimately and decisively dependent upon God, and God is faithful to finish what he started. He will bring his work to full completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So friends, you can bank on this. God is a professional. He's really good at saving people. Like, he's, he's got a better record than Tom Brady. I, like, it's, it's amazing. It's not just that he's really good. It's not just that he has a really good track record for salvation. He doesn't even just have a winning record. He's perfect. He's undefeated. So that all whom he foreknew and predestined, all that he began a good work in through his calling and justifying grace, he will bring home to a glorified existence in, through, and with Jesus Christ on the last day. Just as the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, they won't prevail against the genuine Christian. No one, Jesus says, in John 10, 28, and 29, will snatch the believer from his hand. 
And as the great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, he said that God, if God has given you the gift of life, the greater gift, this is the gift of salvation, this good work, do you think he is now suddenly going to deny himself and his own methods and not see to it that life is sustained and enabled to continue? Indeed, that would be preposterous. That would be unthinkable that God would suddenly have a lapse of power and grace so as to let go of his own. He can't do it. So God will preserve his people. He will complete this good work. Now, as you can imagine, this is something of a controversial subject. Okay, so, so not all those who are genuine Christians agree with this particular teaching on the subject. There are genuine Christians who disagree on the subject of the preservation of the saints. And there are some in our very own church who disagree with this teaching. And, and listen, if that's you, we love you. We want you here. We don't want you to go anywhere. You're welcome here. You're loved here. You're accepted here. That remains to be true. But, but we know that some of you have questions and some of you have problems with this doctrine. And so we want to consider some of those problems and address some of those questions. And so look with me next at the problems with the preservation of the saints. So right away, a question that comes up really often when we talk about the preservation of the saints, is it pertains to those who have fallen away. Uh, so, so, you know, you might be thinking, you're, you're saying that God preserves his people so that they persevere to the end. I know people who have been Christians, but then fallen away. What about them? Doesn't that contradict and compromise this doctrine? And indeed, there are those who profess to be Christians that make a shipwreck of their faith, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.19. The scripture speaks of those who, who at one time profess the faith, claim Christ, are members of the church, even seem to bear some marks of sincerity, but then they fall away, they deny Christ, they leave the church. This happens. We've seen it happen. And, and, and so does that mean that this doctrine isn't true? Of course, you would have to say no. God doesn't lie. He doesn't make mistakes. His word is true. So then what, what, what's going on here? And, and there are several answers that we might give to this question. First, there's the possibility that those who fall away never actually possess a sincere faith to begin with. And Jesus actually talks about this very thing in the parable of the sower in Mark 4. There Jesus depicts the gospel as seed, and the church as those who, who sow and scatter seeds. We go around, we sow and scatter seeds everywhere, and, and, and these seeds fall in all sorts of different kinds of soil. And some of the soil isn't fresh, fertile soil, and some of it is. And the fresh, fertile soil represents hearts that receive the gospel and bear fruit. They represent regenerated hearts. But then the other kinds of soil represent hearts that are not regenerate, that haven't been prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive and trust in God's word. And those bad soils are, are, are depicted in three ways. The first is very simple. It's, it's the beaten down path, which can't absorb seeds, which represents a hard heart that, that can't receive the truth of the gospel. And so birds, which represent Satan and demons, come and snatch up the seed. It produces nothing at all. But then there are two other kinds of soil that don't immediately show themselves to be bad soil, but are only shown to be bad soil after a period of time. There's the rocky soil in which a plant springs up actually immediately. It seems to bear fruit. But then because the soil is rocky, the root system is shallow, and so when the sun rises, the heat causes the plant to wither and die quickly. This represents those who immediately receive the truth of the gospel and they seem to receive it with joy, with excitement. 
but then they don't persevere in the long run. Whenever difficulties and hardships come in life, they have no depth, and so they wither and fall away. And then there's also the, the seed that's scattered amongst the, the soil surrounded by thorns. The seed among the thorny soil also rises up and, and seems to bear fruit, but then The thorns represent the cares of the world and money and possessions and the like. And they come and they choke the word and it proves unfruitful, Jesus says. But then the last soil is that fresh, fertile soil which has been prepared by God's Spirit to receive the seed of the word, to produce fruit, to persevere. And the reason that the soil produces fruit, the reason that these hearts produce gospel fruit and persevere is because they are hearts, the hearts in whom God began his good work, the same good work that he promises to bring to completion. And so all that to say, the reason that some professing Christians don't persevere in the Christian life is because they didn't possess a genuine faith to begin with. They were not truly regenerate. They didn't, they they were not that fresh, fertile soil prepared by God's spirit. So for this reason, the apostle John then writes to to a group of churches about those people who have left their church and abandoned the faith. And listen to what he says to them. He says, 1 John 2, 19, that they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Indeed, many of those who leave the church and deny the faith after professing Christ are merely showing themselves to not be of us, to not ever have actually possessed a genuine faith, to not ever have been the fruitful soil that Jesus talks about. John Calvin describes these very people. He says that those who fall away have never been thoroughly imbued with the knowledge of Christ, but only had a slight and passing taste of it. However, there might also be another category of people who once professed faith but are now denying it. And it's those who we might deem the, 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 as sheep who have wandered astray, but still truly belong to the flock and still belong to the dear shepherd. It's that person that James is talking about in James 5.19 who wanders from the truth, but who we as their fellow sheep and siblings of the faith must go to in order to guide them back into the fold. And actually, our church's confession, our church's confession of faith touches on this particular situation that speaks as it speaks of the perseverance of the saints and i think it it does so beautifully listen to what it says it says that those whom god has accepted in the beloved and sanctified by his spirit will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere to the end and though they may fall through neglect and temptation into sin whereby they grieve the spirit impair their graces and comforts bring reproach on the church and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be renewed again unto repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. You see, there are those who truly belong to Christ, but who backslide for a time. And because of this, they may, may lose feelings of assurance. They may bring God's temporal judgments and discipline upon themselves. They may grieve the Holy Spirit whose presence dwells within them. Indeed, that that may very well describe people that you know. And and friends and spouses and children and, 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 and parents and neighbors and coworkers, whoever. And my encouragement to you is that if you do know people like this, don't write them off so easily. Pray for them, talk with them, plead with them. As James 5.19 says, 
My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And indeed, as, as, our, as it pertains to our particular church, this is actually the reason that we follow the, the process of biblical church discipline. As a church, we've been given instructions for how to handle those who, who deny the faith, either by their words or by their, the, the conduct of their lives. You can find this process laid out in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And the sort of final step taken is to remove that person from membership in the church and to treat them like an unbeliever. And it's painful and heartbreaking and difficult. It's painful for the people disciplined. It's painful for the church who does the disciplining. But Paul actually gives the goal of church discipline, the goal in that process, and it's this, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, so that the person's spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, the painful process of church discipline has its goal in this, that the pain of it would wake up true believers who are living in sin so that they would repent and turn back, or if they're not true believers, to awaken them to repentance maybe for the first time. The aim of it is restoration. The aim of it is to bring back wanderers from the fold back into the fold and into the truth. And so those that fall away may well have been insincere believers to begin with, or they may be sincere believers who will return. And our job is to go after them, to plead with them, to pray with them. What about then the New Testament exhortations and warnings? It's the next problem that comes up with this doctrine. It's the, the exhortation and warning passages in the scriptures. There are passages throughout the New Testament that exhort people to persevere in the faith and, and passages throughout the New Testament that warn people against falling away. You can find some startling warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Why are those warning passages, why are those, those exhortations there if, if, if God will certainly and assuredly preserve his people? And different Christians have answered that question differently, of course. Uh, of course, there are those saints who, who believe that these passages show that one can lose their salvation. Great saints like John Wesley and Martin Luther taught that. Others believe that these sorts of passages speak to a loss of reward, but not a loss of salvation. And yet both of these, these approaches have issues. If one can lose their salvation, that would compromise and contradict the, the passages we've looked at already. But on the other hand, teaching that these texts pertain to a loss of reward instead of a loss of salvation doesn't actually seem to really honor the content, let alone the tone of these texts. There are real warnings regarding what will happen if we fail to persevere. Hebrews 2.1, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or, transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in, uh, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And we could read more, but, but, but you get the picture. These are not merely warnings about a loss of reward while one retains salvation. These are real warnings against falling away. And exhortations to continue on and to persevere in the faith, to fight. Now, if God has promised to preserve his people and scripture teaches that all who are truly his will persevere, why are passages like that there? 
They're there to be used as a means through which God's people will persevere. They are to be used as a means of grace to ensure that God's true people would be preserved and would persevere. When those who truly belong to God hear those warnings, what is their response? Their response is to obey them. When the true believer hears that they ought to pay closer attention to what they have heard, they pay closer attention to what they have heard. When, when the true believer hears that they are to take care, lest there be in them an evil, unbelieving heart, leading them to fall away from the living God, guess what they do? They take care. The great New Testament scholar, Tom Schreiner, who takes this view, he says this about it. He says, how do we as believers receive the warning passages? In our journey in the Christian life, we receive them just for what they say. When we read the warnings in Hebrews, 1 John, Revelation 2-3, to etc., we take seriously the threat that if we commit apostasy, we will be eternally damned. The warnings remind us that falling away from the living God has eternal consequences. They shout out to us, danger! They are akin to a sign on the road that says, go no further, steep cliff ahead. Any driver who wants to preserve his life takes heed to the warning and turns around. He says, if you deny him, or rather, he says, similarly, the warnings and admonitions in the scripture call out to us danger. Do not fall away from the living God. If you deny him, he will deny you. It is precisely by taking the warning seriously that we avoid eternal destruction. The label poison on a bottle seizes our attention and awakens us to the peril which awaits us if we swallow its contents. Thereby, we take special care when handling such a container and do not put it in the same cupboard with soft drinks. The warnings in the scriptures are also intended to arouse us from lethargy and propel us onward in the pathway of life. They provoke a healthy fear so that we are not casual and relaxed about entering the heavenly rest. And he's right on. And this is actually very consistent with what those throughout church history have said about the, the preservation of the saints. We're going to get nerdy. Let's get nerdy for a second. So the Synod of Dort, yes, nerdy. The Synod of Dort was a gathering of theologians and pastors from many different countries in 1618 and 1619. A synod is just a fancy word for a meeting. It's a gathering. Dort was the village in the Netherlands that they gathered in. And uh, they gathered to write an official document called the Canons of Dort, laying out what, what, uh, some of what we've been talking about in this series. But the last point they wrote about was on the subject of the perseverance of the saints, or the preservation of the saints. And listen to what, one thing that they said. They wrote, God does not take the Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. God preserves, continues, and finishes the work. Listen here, because, because they address the means, the instruments through which God works to preserve his people. They say that, God preserves, continues, and finishes his work by the hearing and reading of the gospel, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and by use of the sacraments. You see, my friends, similarly to how God used means to regenerate and effectually call you at the beginning of the Christian life, right? He did that. He used means. He used the preaching of his word. 
He used the evangelism of a friend. He used the faithfulness of his people. He used means, instruments through which to work and through which he began his, God, his good work in you. And today, as he seeks to preserve you, he still uses means. He still uses instruments to cultivate and continue and increase this good work in you until the last day. He uses the hearing and reading of the gospel. He uses personal spiritual disciplines like prayer and Bible reading and fasting and scripture memorization. He uses the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He uses other believers and he even uses the exhortations and warnings of his word to preserve and persevere in his grace. That's why those exhortations and warnings are in the New Testament and it's why we must pay very close attention to them. And then the last problem. Before we move on to the practicality, I, I, I know there are more problems in this, but, but we only have so much time. So last problem, is this the same thing as eternal security? You know, so sometimes you'll hear people talk about eternal security or, or once saved, always saved. Is this that? Yes or no, depending on what you mean. So sometimes people just call the biblical doctrine of the preservation of the saints eternal security or once saved, always saved. But sometimes when you hear those phrases, what's meant is something else entirely. So I've actually seen it before. Occasions in which a person will, will profess faith in Christ. Let's say a young man, his name is Bobby Joe. Let's call him Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe will go to church with his grandma. And he'll hear the gospel preached by the pastor. And Bobby Joe will approach the pastor after service. And he'll go to the pastor and, and he'll say, I profess belief in Christ. I'm, I'm professing the faith. And he like prays a sinner's prayer or something like that. And then he walks away thinking, I'm saved. And his family thinks he's saved. And his pastor thinks he's saved. But then a little time goes by. And Bobby Joe goes right on to living and thinking and speaking and acting just like he did before. He forgets about Jesus. He forgets about the church, he forgets about the scriptures, he forgets about the Christian life, all while retaining this, this false sense of assurance that he is truly saved. Yet he and his family, even the pastor, God help us sometimes, will declare Bobby Joe eternally secure. And once saved, always saved, because he prayed a prayer once. That's not the preservation of the saints, friends. Listen, the, the preservation of the saints always leads to the perseverance of the saints. The good work that God begins in his people at regeneration is a transforming work. It's a life-altering work. The sanctifying work of God, which most certainly follows the regenerating work of God, continues to transform and change and direct and grow God's people so that they are conformed more and more to Christ-likeness so that they become more and more holy. Just as we quoted last week, J.C. Ryle, where there's no sanctification, there is no real life in Christ. Where there's no sanctification, there is no salvation. If Bobby Joe does not give a lick about the glory of God and pleasing Christ and grieving the Holy Spirit, then Bobby Joe ought not to be assured that he's eternally secure or once saved, always saved, or whatever. Bobby Joe needs that believer that James calls us to be in James 5.19, that goes and retrieves the wanderer from his wanderings and brings him back into the fold. And if he doesn't return, then Bobby Joe belongs to that group that John warns us about in 1 John 2.19 that went out from us because they were not of us. 
Don't confuse the doctrine of the preservation of the saints with, sometime, what is, with what is sometimes called eternal security. Or once saved, always saved. Those who are preserved persevere. But then one major problem also that we find when talking about the preservation of the saints is that it's often deemed as irrelevant, just theological speculation. That it doesn't actually matter all that much and that it needlessly causes arguments and distracts us from mission. That it's not practical, so why bother with it? Look with me lastly at the practicality from the preservation of the saints. The biblical doctrine of the preservation of the saints is helpful, it's useful, and it's helpful and useful for a multitude of reasons. It's helpful and useful because first, it gives us confidence in our fight to persevere. It gives us hope and confidence in our fight to persevere. No doubt, if you're a Christian, you have met with times where you've wondered if you, can, if you possess the strength to go on. You've had seasons wherein you struggle with doubt. You've you've questioned whether or not you're really saved. You've met with temptation that seemed like it was too strong to resist. You've given in to temptation and you've sinned against God and others. Maybe you've been that wanderer in James 5 where you've wandered away from the truth and, and not quite sure that you'll be able to get back onto the path of following Christ. Well, the doctrine of the preservation of the saints says, yes, you can. You do have the strength to continue. You do have the resources to overcome your doubts. You can have assurance that you're truly saved. You are strong enough to resist temptation. You are able to confess and repent when you failed to resist temptation. You can get back on track, not because of anything special about you or anything strong within you, but because of the resources needed for doing these things and living the Christian life are not found in you, but found in your omnipotent God whose power knows no bounds. No one can thwart his plans. No one is stronger than him. And he gives his strength to you to continue on, to fight, to persevere. As Jerry Packer once put it, he says, your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to keep you. And so you see, you can face the next step, the next day, the next week, and so on with confidence that you will continue on and will persevere to the end because it's not you but God within you who will do it. Second, it not only gives us confidence and hope to fight, it also frees us from pride or paralyzing fear. So we human beings can be fickle creatures. And it's really one of the biggest problems with not believing in the preservation of the saints. Because at the end of the day, if you don't believe in this doctrine, then the ultimate say regarding whether or not you persevere lies with you. When it comes down to it, your making it to the end comes down to you. Sure, you might say that God helps you, but you've got the final say. And if you've got the final say, then you'll have one of two responses. You'll either be prideful or paralyzed with fear. If you think that your perseverance ultimately relies on you and your strength to persevere, you might start to think, well, I'm doing pretty good here. I've, I'm doing a pretty good job. I've, I've been strong enough to persevere even while I've seen friends and family and loved ones and neighbors fall away. That must be because I'm, I'm morally superior to them, stronger, possessing Better character, better resolve and fortitude. You'll you'll be prideful and self-righteous, possessing the exact kind of pharisaical attitude that God finds repugnant. 
or you'll be paralyzed with fear. If you think that it comes down to you in the end, whether or not you persevere, then if you're not prideful, then you'll, you'll constantly wonder if you've got what it takes, if you've got the strength and resolve to, to carry on within you. And newsflash, apart from the preserving grace of God, you don't. Not unless it's God's strength within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so you'll never have grounds for assurance. You'll never have this kind of confidence in God's saving grace that you could have if you believe in this doctrine. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, perhaps put it best when he said, if I did not believe in the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints, I think I should be of all men the most miserable because I should like any ground for comfort. You need to be freed from pride and paralyzing fear that inevitably comes from not holding to this doctrine. And third, the biblical doctrine of the preservation of the saints is also needed because it keeps us from abusing the certainty of God's grace. So J.C. Ryle talks a little bit about this in his, in, his, uh, on the, in his book on the subject. And he says that this doctrine can be abused when believers make their safety an excuse for inconsistencies in practice. It is abused when they make their, their security from final ruin an apology for a low standard of sanctification and a distant walk with God. And so see here that, that I, I say with intentionality the biblical doctrine because there are some out there who claim to hold to this doctrine, but who have a warped version of it that doesn't require sanctification and actual perseverance. We looked at this a few moments ago with eternal security, once saved, always saved. Those are not the biblical doctrines, but a cheap knockoff, which is okay to have a cheap knockoff if you're buying a coat, but when it comes to biblical doctrines, you don't want the cheap knockoff. We need to understand and know and believe the real thing rather than the cheap knockoff so that we will fight to persevere and continue on. Because indeed, there are those who abuse this teaching with their carelessness and their apathy in the Christian life. And so, if we, want to and so we need to understand that God's preservation leads to our perseverance and that this perseverance is not passive or an apathetical thing, but an active and, and vibrant fight to continue on whatever may come then we'll be safeguarded from abusing this doctrine like so many do. Next, it comforts us in the midst of difficulty and suffering. It's undoubtedly, our, our little church has suffered much in the past four or five years. We've all faced difficulty in the last year in some measure. And how easy is it in those moments for the enemy to whisper convincingly in your ear, for Doubts to creep into your mind for thoughts to gain a foothold and grow. Whisperings, doubts, thoughts like the reason this is happening to you is because God has abandoned you. The reason you're suffering, the reason you're facing difficulty is because God is not your father and you are not his child. He doesn't care about you. You're an orphan. You're forsaken. You're abandoned. Well, what this doctrine shows us is that whatever our suffering means, Whatever the reason for it is, it can't mean that God has abandoned you. It can't mean that you're an orphan. It can't mean that you're forsaken. That cannot happen to a genuine child of God. It can't because Christ already suffered forsakenness so that you would never have to. He suffered that forsakenness on the cross of Calvary so that you, as a child of God, never would. And now God has promised you, Christian, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And so if God ever leaves you or forsakes you, he'd be a liar. And God is not a liar. He has staked his very own glory and reputation on his faithfulness to you, Christian. He has staked his very own glory and reputation on preserving you and finishing the good work he began in you. And God will never do anything to compromise his own glory. So that even in the midst of suffering and difficulty, you can remain confident in this and be comforted in this. God has not abandoned you. He will never, ever, ever abandon you. Whatever the reason for your suffering. Whatever the reason for the difficulty, it's not because God has forsaken you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And then lastly, we need this doctrine. Because it causes us to glory in and relish the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And really, this is one reason why I love this doctrine so very much. Because it makes much of God. It makes much of His power, his character, his grace, his promises. It makes God look big and magnificent and glorious just like he is. It showcases his power and sovereignty and authority and faithfulness in such a way that it causes us to be in utter awe of the magnitude of his sovereign grace. If we deny this doctrine, it makes God's promises look fickle. It makes his character questionable, his power limited, his grace insufficient. But if we know anything about Scripture's testimony regarding the glorious God that we know, we know he's none of those things. His promises are sure. His character is perfect. His power absolute. His grace sufficient. And so as those on the receiving end of his grace and promises, this doctrine invites us to glory in and exult in and relish the astounding magnificence of our God's glorious grace, to be amazed, to be in awe, and to rest in utter security. God preserves his people so that they would persevere to the end. All those whom he foreknew and predestined in eternity past will most certainly be glorified in eternity future because the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious doctrine. We thank you that it it shows you to be the big, glorious, righteous, sovereign, faithful, gracious God that you are. Open our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts to see it and to see you in it and to marvel, to relish, to glory, to exult, and to be so assured and so joyful and so fired up by that reality that we would go and make much of you in our homes, in employment, in neighborhoods this week. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.